Tonight, straight from the source, the fourth Trump employee in that superseding indictment identified the Mar-a-Lago IT worker who was allegedly asked to delete surveillance footage. Also, what we're learning about that new co-defendant at the center of these new charges and Trump's added legal exposure. Also, more than a dozen Republican presidential hopefuls are in one room in Iowa right now. One was just booed on stage for explicitly criticizing Trump. The former president will take the stage any moment. Also, Ron DeSantis clashing with two black members of his own party over how his state teaches slavery. Despite the blowback, the Florida governor isn't backing down. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. This is something you don't really see every night. Donald Trump and a dozen of the people hoping to take his place as the Republican nominee and potentially the Republican president are all in one room in Iowa just right now. The former president is about to speak any moment now, and this is his first major speech since he was charged again in the classified documents probe. So far tonight, only one other candidate at that dinner has been willing to go on stage and explicitly criticize the former president. Donald Trump is not running for president to make America great again. Donald Trump is not running for president to represent the people that voted for him in 2016 and 2020. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Listen, I know the truth. The truth is hard. But if we elect Donald Trump, we are willingly giving Joe Biden four more years in the White House, and America can't handle that. That is former Texas Congressman Will Hurd. It's not surprising that he is criticizing Trump, but those boos are an indicator of just how much support the former president still has in a room like that, full of donors in Iowa, despite all of the legal troubles he is facing, including what was added yesterday. On Thursday, the Republican frontrunner was bracing for charges in one of the cases tied to efforts to overturn the 2020 election, but instead was slapped with another, more charges in another case, that one tied to his handling of classified documents. Two of those charges stem from allegations that he tried to destroy surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago. Unsurprisingly, the former president spent the day lashing out at the special counsel. These were my tapes that we gave to them. And they basically then say that's not enough. We didn't. I don't think we would have had to give it. I'm not sure that we would have even had to give it. These were security tapes. We handed them over to them. They're trying to intimidate people so that people go out and make up lies about me because I did nothing wrong. I should note, Trump today is also claiming voluntarily that he handed over footage of that he is now tra- accused of trying to delete. That is not true. He was subpoenaed for that footage that they then gave over to prosecutors. And new tonight, the identity of the person who was referred to in the superseding indictment is the IT worker allegedly asked to delete the security footage at Mar-a-Lago as part of a request from, quote, the boss. I'm joined now by CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, along with CNN legal analyst Carrie Cordero and defense attorney Shan Wu, Also, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and the former FBI deputy director, Andrew McCabe. Paula, we're waiting for Trump to get on stage. I mean, the first remarks that we're really seeing from him out in public since he since he was added these new charges 
and a new co-defendant. But what he is making clear is he is viewing this race as a way to potentially insulate himself from the very legal charges that he's facing. Well, he can certainly try. It's not working so far, right? We're on a third or second indictment, anticipating our third this year soon. And yes, if he is reelected, he could make the special counsel investigation go away. He can pardon himself if he's already been convicted, pardon his co-defendants. I'm sure he's not losing sleep over what uh, he will be prosecuted on in Manhattan. But when it comes to the Georgia case, for example, where we also expect him to be charged, he cannot make that go away. So legally speaking, the charges are going to keep coming, and it's unclear if he is going to truly be able to insulate himself from all of the legal exposure he faces. Yeah, he's saying he would fire Jack Smith if he's elected, of course. That's a hypothetical away. But what can you tell us about what we're also learning about Carlos De La Vera, who, of course, is the new co-defendant in this case, the Mar-a-Lago property manager, who, who now we're, say, we're hearing reaction from, from his loved ones about this. Yeah, look, Haley, you got to feel for this guy a little bit, right? I mean, he is a property manager at a resort down in Florida. We learned he lives a pretty middle-class lifestyle. He's not in the Trump inner circle. He doesn't have a lot of interactions with the former president. He's found himself at the center of this case because his boss, right, the man he depends on to pay his bills, and arguably one of the most powerful people in the world, was pressing him to at least inquire about deleting some surveillance footage. Uh, several of his acquaintances say, look, it's unlikely he even understood exactly what he, he was being asked to do and that it was illegal, but he really uh, put himself in jeopardy here by not being honest with the FBI, by allegedly lying. And we know really sophisticated people, okay? Martha Stewart, General Petraeus, they sit across from people, like I think we have three formal federal prosecutors here, <laughs> And you can see how someone could get tripped up. They may not be honest, but once that happens, it's, it, you make yourself really vulnerable to a federal case if you don't plea. Yeah, and also, though, I mean, the FBI agents had already visited Mar-a-Lago. Everyone at Mar-a-Lago was aware that the FBI agents had been there. And so, Andrew, that leads me to you, which is we have now identified the Trump employee four, as he's called in this indictment, is useful to Veras. He is the IT person who's in charge of all of that. He was the one that Carlos allegedly went to and said the boss wants the server deleted. Is it clear to you from reading the superseding indictment that the, the special counsel is talking to more people? Absolutely. The special counsel is talking to more people. I think uh, the suggestion, certainly from the phrasing in the indictment, is that UCL Tavares has spoken to the special counsel and he is likely the source of the conversations, the statements that you see quoted in the indictment. There's no sign whatsoever that was that, that there was any sort of recording or electronic surveillance of those conversations. So how else would they have gotten them but from uh, uh, Tavares or Delaveria? And he certainly wouldn't have been contributing uh, uh, evidence to the indictment against himself. Yeah. And Chin, obviously, I mean, what I'm hearing is this is making people nervous. People who work at Mar-a-Lago or work in the former president's inner circle are now asking questions about who else could be talking and what they're saying. Oh, absolutely. That would make the entire staff quite nervous at this point. I think it's really interesting to see at this point with these, with him being added as a uh, co-defendant here, a lot of people are wondering whether that's going to increase the pressure on him and Nada to plead guilty or cut a deal now. I really don't think so. It's too late in the day for that. The time they would have done that is much earlier. They're quite committed to this course, so that's not happening. That's interesting because I do think that's a question that this has raised. The other thing that we've learned today is about that document. That was the other revelation is that he was now charged with a document at the center of that audio tape. It's Iran attack plans, we are told from, from our reporting, but it is now part of this charging document. It was not the first time the indictment was brought. Uh, what does that tell you? I mean, could that potentially help 
his case here, given what we are told is that it was actually turned over in those original 15 boxes back to the National Archives before Trump got a subpoena for the rest of the documents that he had. Well, when the original indictment came out, one of the questions was, did he really show the document to the people who were in the room at the time? And the original indictment, it really was hard just as a reader to know whether or that was the case or whether he was just bluffing um, in the moment. And so now that the indictment is actually, uh, the document is actually referenced in the new superseding indictment, that indicates that the Justice Department would plan to actually present that document uh, in evidence at the case if this were actually to end up going to trial. And I think there's a couple of reasons that maybe uh, there was the delay from including it in the first one to this one. One might be that in the intervening uh, month or so, that they uh, were able to get witnesses who actually testified further to the grand jury indicating yes, and testifying under oath, yes, he actually did show us the document and this is what it was. Um, the other possibility um, is that the intelligence community finally agreed to be able to let the Justice Department have the authorization to use it. These are yeah. just theories. You know, our, our reporting will bear out which one turns out to be true if it was some other circumstance. But those are the theories that I think are possible. It's just remarkable because Paul and I have been trying to track this document and its origins down for, for weeks, if not months now. And we were kind of being you know told by sources, maybe it never existed, maybe it was just a paper dinner menu or whatever he could have been holding. I mean, now it's made clear that's not what it was. No, it's not. And it's also clear that it has been in the possession of archives, which does make it harder to successfully prosecute willful retention. And we notice that all the other documents that were originally given over to the archives have not been charged. Now we'll note between the time of the initial indictment and now, the former president did an interview with Fox News where he insisted that he didn't have a document. And I can tell you from talking to sources on both sides, there is no love lost between these two teams. And it is also possible that they added this just to make a point to the former president. And can I also ask you, though, because the other thing that we're hearing from Trump today, and please add what you would like to on the document, because I'm very interested in your thoughts on that, but also the comments from Trump today saying, Jack Smith, the special counsel, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, belong in jail. I mean, Jack Smith is literally prosecuting Trump right now, about to potentially bring another indictment, and he's saying that he belongs to be in jail. Not going to help him with the judge in this case. Federal judges don't take kindly to defendants lashing out uh, at the prosecutor personally or at the attorney general. So he's, he's once again, that may play well with his supporters and his base. It's not going to work for him in court. As for the document, you know, the, you're right. I think the, the fact that he turned this document back to NARA undermines a little bit the case on willful retention. But as we know, the Espionage Act also penalizes dissemination or communication of the substance of a national defense uh, national defense information. And that is certainly the case if these allegations are true uh, in the way that he handled that document, showed it to or talked about it to the folks in that room. So I think it's still problematic for him. Yes, Jim. It, it also has another advantage for the prosecutors <clears throat> to bring it. Even if it's weak on the retention aspect, it's what we call charging the bad conduct. Before this audio tape, which is so damning for Trump, there could have been a fight over whether it gets in or not. But by charging the document that he's allegedly waving around, it's much easier to get an audio tape, and they know that jurors like audio tapes. Jurors <laughs> do like audio tapes. It's good evidence. Thank you all for being here tonight. Of course, we are watching to see Trump as he is speaking on that stage in that room in Iowa with people trying to challenge him. Governor Chris Sununu also in that room. What he says about the latest charges against Trump, that's next.
tonight you are seeing something that you don't often see on the campaign trail. This is the Republican primary and, of course, 12 of the candidates. Most of them are all in one room tonight in Iowa, including former President Donald Trump. That's Vivek Ramaswamy speaking now on stage. This is in Des Moines, Iowa, the annual Lincoln dinner there. Each of the candidates has 10 minutes to get on stage and pitch themselves two donors in the first in the nation caucuses for this state. Of course, all of this is coming as Trump has just been added with new charges and a new co-defendant. The big question tonight is what are those candidates saying about not just the front runner, but his legal exposure? Instead, so far tonight, the big targets have been President Biden and Vice President Harris, mostly. I know Kamala's here in Iowa, but I bet you she hadn't spent near as much time at the border as she spent in Iowa talking about abortion. I've been to that border. I got Kamala Harris coming down to Florida trying to create uh, phony narratives because she understands Florida has stood up to the left's agenda. The radical left and Joe Biden has us, as they continue to sell this drug of victimhood and the narcotic of despair. The GOP is under threat today. As it stands right now, you will be voting in Iowa while multiple criminal cases are pending against former President Trump. Iowa has an opportunity to say, we as a party, we need a new direction for America and for the GOP. And joining me now from Des Moines is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Governor, thanks for being with me tonight. I mean, what does it say about the room behind you that the frontrunner of your party right now is accused of trying to delete security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago? Look, it's, uh, it's like Groundhog Day, unfortunately, right? Another day, another page of the soap opera of Donald Trump. And unfortunately, it's everything that the party shouldn't be focusing on, right? We've got to be focusing on the future and what we're about, getting people excited again to be part of the Republican Party, bringing independents and, and the uh, suburban moms back into the party that have left us over the past few uh, elections, primarily because of Donald Trump, his message and his drama. But the main person on that stage tonight who has a commanding lead in every single poll that you look like that you look at has been accused by the Justice Department as of yesterday of trying to not only keep national security documents, but also delete security camera footage showing the room where those documents were stored. No, absolutely. And look, uh, it's it's not the it's not the first charge we've heard against Donald Trump. It's not the first court or the first uh, 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 prosecutor that's really going against the former president. These things just kind of keep lining up. On the other side, you have Biden, right? With, I mean, the, the Hunter stuff is, is getting worse and worse for the Biden family by the day. Um, I, it doesn't bode well for either party. Now, on, on, as it pertains to Republicans, Donald Trump right now in my home state in Hampshire, recent polls have him under 40%. So what it says is the majority of the base, hardcore Republicans, are not with this guy. So as a party, if we can, through events like this, we can get it down to just one or two other candidates, the former president's going to be in trouble politically. There's no doubt about it, and he knows it, and he's afraid that we're going to have kind of that discipline to get it down to one-on-one. But I should note, Hunter Biden is not the frontrunner of the Democratic Party. He is not a former sitting president accused of, of mishandling national security secrets. No, I mean, but, but his is there is any the chance? President, right? <laughs> That's correct. But but president... I mean, his father is the current president, and, and the current president is tied to Hunter Biden's problem. So you can't ignore that on the other side of the equation. Yeah, but and are you are you equating? Wants both these guys off their ticket. 
Are you without I mean, it's not a defense of Hunter Biden and the fact that he didn't pay his taxes. But are you equating that and the gun charge with what Trump is accused of doing? No, no. But politically, they could have the same result of pushing both their front runners off the top of the ticket. From a political standpoint, they could end up with the same result. The people who are gathered in that room tonight, it's most of the 2024 candidates. I mean, what does it say about is there any charge that could lead a Republican candidate there who is not named Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson or Will Hurd to directly criticize their biggest challenger? I think they'll get there. I really do. I, I know a lot of these candidates are, are trying to lay groundwork. They're laying their policy. They're laying who they are and what they're about. But to your point, there's no doubt they got to start swinging. Um, whether it starts with a, a light zinger or whether you go Chris Christie full bore and you really lay out Trump's uh, uh, kind of failed agenda and lack of agenda for the future of this party. So one way or another, they all are going to have to really get there. The idea that you're going to somehow cater to a Trump voter uh, by not attacking the former president makes no sense because uh, here's a memo for you. It's a Trump voter. They're voting for the former president. You're not going to win them over. So they got to be able to stand on their own, show leadership, show that you're willing to have the courage to push back, call, call it like you see it, call the balls and strikes like you see them. I think they all know what's going on. Some of them are a little hesitant and taking some bad political advice. But believe me, this is a six-month roller coaster. It really starts tonight. It's going to you know, end up in, in, the Granite, in the Iowa caucus and in the First of the Nation primary in New Hampshire. And by that time, I think you're really going to get it down to one or two candidates, those that are willing to have that discussion, are willing to take on the former president, are willing to show some charisma and leadership and inspire this party into what should be successful for us in 2024. Do you believe that Trump is running to protect himself from his mounting legal challenges? I, I, honestly, does that play into it? No, I don't think so. I think it's just a whole lot of ego. I think it's a whole lot of an, a, an empty suit ego at this point. Uh, he's, he's up in the polls. Uh, he wants to kind of uh, garner public opinion to his side because that's what he lives on. That's, his, that's what he thrives on. That's his, the gas in, in his tank, so to say. But it's not about the future of this, this country. It's sure not about the future of this party. So uh, I don't know. I, I guess everyone has their own, uh, their own theories on it. But for me, it just looks like a lot of ego and narcissism with not a lot behind it. You're standing in that room tonight. Governor Ron DeSantis, of course, has been all over Iowa. He's trying to win there. He is now trying to clarify comments he made about putting RFK Jr., of course, someone who lies about vaccines at the CDC or the FDA. Does a conspiracy theorist like that belong anywhere near the federal government, in your view? Uh, well, I can tell you, RFK Jr. wouldn't be in my administration if I had one. Um, so, look, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not going to explain uh, Governor DeSantis' comments. I mean, he can explain those uh, for himself, other than, you know, we're a Republican Party, and we just want good, sound policies on those Republican ideals of limited government, local control, um, uh, fiscal responsibility. That is the core of what we are. And I get all this, whether you're talking about the woke stuff, whether you're talking about anti-vax stuff, that can get folks excited. I get it. But at the end of the day, that's not what defines us as Republicans. And I think we're going to have a lot of time and a lot of opportunity to bring the party back to its core, back to its base, get rid of some of the drama, and make sure we're having candidates that are just doing right by the country. And if we do that, we're going to be really successful, not just at the presidential level, but all the way up and down the ticket, as opposed to former President Trump that doesn't just uh, mathematically, he can't win in November. He really hurts Republicans down the ticket. The Senate races, the governor's races, the school board races. This guy crushes us as a party. You were recently at that No Labels town hall event in your home state. Of course, they are 
putting forward this idea of potentially putting a third party candidate on the ticket if it is looking like a Biden Trump rematch. I mean, the consensus or the critics have said that they believe that that is something that would tip the election in the favor of Donald Trump. Do you agree with that? No, no, it's not it's not a, a Trump thing or a, a tipping it for Trump or Biden. I mean, no one really knows what what that would mean. What it would mean is 70 percent of this country who don't want either of those two on the top of the ticket would finally have a home. I mean, when you think about it, 70 percent of this country is kind of politically homeless when it comes to the presidential race right now. They're not engaging. They're not getting excited. So that's the opportunity I think they're trying to capitalize on. But would you vote for a third party candidate by any if Trump is the Republican nominee? Uh, I'm not. No, look, I think that it's interesting. I think they have an opportunity to have a discussion, but I, uh, we'll see where it goes in terms of the, the value of the third party. OK, but no word on, on whether or not you would vote for a third party candidate potentially. <laughs> no, I'm, look, I'm going for the Republican. And it ain't going to be Donald Trump. OK, but if it is Trump, what do you do? It's not going to be. That's, 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 that's my job. That's part of my job and others to make sure that we stand up and make sure it's not that we stand on the real Republican ideals. We put that ego and the narcissism and all the drama behind us. Governor Chris Sununu, thanks so much for joining us from Iowa tonight. You bet. Thank you. A confident prediction from Governor Sununu that Trump will not be the 2024 Republican nominee. I should note in that same room where you saw Governor Sununu standing, Donald Trump is now on stage giving his speech. We'll see if he responds to that direct criticism from a fellow Republican who was also on stage. Also up next, that Ron DeSantis campaign reboot has run into reality. The governor of Florida is now engaged in a war of words with two of the highest profile black Republicans in his party. Amid a campaign reset that includes shedding staff and cutting costs, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis now finds himself locked in a war of words with top black conservatives over slavery. The vice president, civil rights leaders, some teachers, and now almost every black conservative member of Congress have criticized Florida's new black history teaching standards and DeSantis' defense of them. This is what 2024 presidential rival Senator Tim Scott said today. There's, There's no silver lining in freedom, in slavery. What slavery was, was really about separating families, about mutilating humans, and even raping their wives. It was just devastating. Listen, people have bad days. Sometimes they regret what they say. And we should uh, ask them again to clarify their positions. But DeSantis is not clarifying and instead criticizing Senator Scott there and saying that he is repeating a talking point from the vice president. Part of the reason our country has struggled is because uh, D.C. Republicans all too often accept false narratives, uh, accept lies that are perpetrated by the left. That's not the way you do it. The way you do it, the way you lead, is to fight back against the lies, is to speak the truth. I should note, it is not just Senator Tim Scott, also Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, who is the only black Republican in Florida's congressional delegation, and Republican Congressman John James of Michigan, who weighed in saying, quote, my brother in Christ, if you find yourself in a deep hole, put the shovel down. (laughs) Joining me now, CNN political commentator Karen Finney and the former lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. Jeff, is that what a 
successful campaign reset looks like getting in this fight with Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, Wesley Hunt, all of these other Republicans? That's not what I would have in mind, but but kudos to, to Tim Scott and anybody else who's stepping up and doing the right thing here. I mean, this is an issue that Republicans need to run clear away from and just simply hold the fact that slavery is terrible, awful, it's a, it's a terrible stain, it's the most inhumane thing you can do, and move on to the issues of the day that Americans want to talk about. Yeah, and DeSantis didn't write these new rules of the curriculum. It was a board that came up with them. I know that that's what DeSantis' office has also been highlighting, uh, members of that who, who created this and talked about the benefit of it. But the idea that this is something that Republicans are arguing over and that candidates on the 2024 campaign trail are being asked about in 2023. Well, and remember with DeSantis, it also it started back in, I mean, I'm old enough to remember February, right, when the African-American AP class, he wanted, he said, no, we're not doing the AP class. And I think it's about 18 other states have denounced this new course on African-American history. And then it was banning books. And then it was banning, you know, college-level courses. But yeah, I mean, first of all, the fact that we're having to say slavery was bad in 2023 is pretty astonishing, particularly for those of us who have in our own families our personal stories and know the horrors that they endured during slavery. The other problem, though, politically, is, you know, I think DeSantis thinks he's attacking Kamala Harris, the vice president. Um, And you saw, I mean, this was a talking point earlier this week. It was a talking point clearly to attack her tonight at the dinner. But They've been Republicans have been making inroads with black voters in this country. And so where this with this back and forth also jeopardizes his ability, if you believe he could be the uh, nominee, which I don't think he could be. How is he going to square that with with potential black voters? I mean, you saw this in Georgia with Herschel Walker's campaign. Right. And so I think that's the bigger political issue is it really shifts the ground in terms of how are you going to do outreach to black voters? And what does this have to do? I mean, Senator Tim Scott has been rising in the polls slowly but steadily. And in some of the polls we've seen, DeSantis is more to statistical tie with people like Senator Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. And his campaign has made clear they believe Tim Scott should be getting more scrutiny as he is rising in those polls. Look, there, there's a lane developing here. I mean, let's not, we, we just went three minutes without talking about the fact Donald Trump has multiple indictments at state and federal levels and more coming. So I do think there's going to be a heavier weight day by day that shows up to Donald Trump. And there is a lane developing for a candidate, but we got to get this right. We can't take the, take the bait that Donald Trump set four, five, six years ago of the louder and angrier you are means the more conservative you are. Those two are not connected, right? We ought to run on the conservative principles. And now, with Joe Biden, he's making this easier. This isn't a political statement. This isn't an emotional statement. Statistically speaking, this should be the easiest White House to win for a Republican ever. And, we're, and we keep tripping on our own feet. Well, and speaking of the White House, President Biden is coming out tonight and doing something that, that we have not seen him do before, which is yeah. acknowledging that he has seven grandchildren, not six. Obviously, this is something that attention has been brought to with Hunter Biden's child, Navy. She is the daughter of Hunter Biden and London Roberts. Um, This is a woman who filed a paternity suit against Hunter Biden in 2019. It's been playing out in the courts there. And in this new statement tonight, President Biden says, quote, "Our our, our son Hunter and Navy's mother, London, are working together to foster a relationship that is in the best interest of their daughter, preserving her privacy as much as possible going forward, but also acknowledging that he, he does have yeah. seven grandchildren. I was really happy to see him, he and the first lady make acknowledge uh, their granddaughter. I mean, I have some compassion. I come from a very complicated family. Families are complicated. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but at the same time, 
a four-year-old child should be off limits politically. So I, I do hope that we can, I mean, attack him all you want, but remember that someday this child is going to look back and read what it is that people are saying about her. And so I would just caution folks on all sides of the political spectrum to just, there's got to be one place, one thing that is off limits, and that should be a four-year-old child who's completely innocent. How do Republicans handle this? Does this put the issue to bed for them now that he has finally acknowledged it? Well, it, this is a rounding error issue. This, we shouldn't pick presidents of the United States, the most powerful position in the world based on these family issues. Right? I got three kids. I want to leave them off the radar, let them grow up and, and live their lives. But we ought to be focusing on the big issues. Eight out of 10 Americans don't want to see Donald Trump and Joe Biden run against each other. Yet that looks like the train wreck that's going to happen. You know, as, as a Republican uh, that got this right, right out of the gates, you know, there, it's bittersweet because for about eight milliseconds, I feel like we're, we're getting history right. But then I realize my party's on fire and it's burning up right in front of me. And, and I don't know what that reset button is going to end up looking like. I hope it happens in the next few months. I hope somebody is able to step up and take Donald Trump out. I mean, what does it say to you that, that Trump was critic that Will Hurd was booed tonight, criticizing Trump, saying, you know, that he was just telling the truth? I got booed two days before Donald Trump's uh, the 2020 election when I said our policies are so good as Republicans, they even help the people that don't vote for us. And 40,000 people wearing red hats booed me, right? This is crazy, right? We, we need to change our mindsets. And I think the conservative movement, the conservative policies make sense in today's world with the problems that we have in this country with public safety, national security. It's time, it's time for us to turn the page. Jeff Duncan, Karen Finney, thanks for spending Friday night with me. <laughs> Up next, he is facing indictments in New York and Florida, and as soon as next week, maybe in Jeff's home state of Georgia, also maybe here in Washington. What it's like to handle legal problems for the former president, we're going to speak to two people who know. Tonight, Donald Trump is now saying this about the Justice Department meeting that he just called productive yesterday, saying he expects nothing from the meeting with my lawyers and the lunatics in the DOJ regarding January 6th. He's accusing them, as he has been for several weeks and if not months now, of interfering in the 2024 election. Let's discuss with lawyers who worked inside the Trump White House, May Mailman and Jim Schultz here with me tonight. May, I mean, as someone who worked in the White House counsel's office, what is it like for you to hear the new charges yesterday of a president attempting to, to delete surveillance footage? Well, you know, these charges are an inkblot test, I think, for most Americans. Um, if you are inclined to think that Trump's a criminal, they definitely promote that. If you are inclined to think that the, the Department of Justice is partisan, you know, you're immediately reminded of Hillary Clinton deleting 30,000 emails. And here we're just talking about surveillance, not the actual documents themselves. So it's not necessarily surprising to me. I guess I'm, I'm of the mind that there's probably another cooperating witness, and that's why they continue to charge. But I do think that there's one thing that I find maybe beneficial to Trump here, which is that the document that they're now charging, so this Iran war document, is something that he returned to the Department of Justice. And that, I think, was the most damning statement that he said um, that Jack Smith had, which is that he thought that that war document was classified. Well, it turns out he returned that classified document. I think that that opens up an argument that you could say that the remaining documents that he had, those were the ones that he thought that he declassified. But he was also claiming that he didn't even have that document. He never used the defense that he had actually turned that document back over to the Justice Department. I mean, he was acting like it didn't exist and saying it was just bravado. But, but Jim, I mean, Trump's attorneys in this case, they, they kind of thought they knew what they were up against, what they were dealing with. 
But now with a documents investigation, they are facing major charges. There's a new co-defendant. I mean, what is it like to be a Trump attorney who is waiting on one indictment and then you get this put in your lap? Another entire addition to that case. Look, I tend to think that that document, that 30-second document, is a real problem for the defense team. And I think it's a real problem because in that meeting, there, there were discussions going on about that document, and they're able to now go to witnesses and say, was that document present in that meeting? And whether, it was, whether the president claims it was classified or declassified or whatever it is, that's all going to get sorted out. But the bottom line is, if it wasn't declassified, and he can't show that it was declassified, and he was shown it to somebody he shouldn't have, and that person corroborates that testimony, corroborates that testimony that's a real problem for the, for the former president. Well, I mean, he acknowledges on that audio tape that it, that it wasn't declassified. I mean, he's the one saying that. And of course, uh, everyone has talked about not only the effort to, to retain the documents, but also transmission, showing it uh, to other people. May, one thing that we have learned about this with this new co-defendant who has been added to this, Carlos de la Vera, in this, of the question of who is paying for his attorneys and a question of his loyalties where Trump was telling others and calling Carlos himself to say that he would make sure he had an attorney here. What does that say to you? Well, you know, as much as I would like to think that there's some sort of altruism going on here, I really don't think that that's the case. Obviously, Trump has not paid for any of the defenses for January 6th defendants, which just really hurts my heart because these are people who had nothing and gave up everything for Trump. But I think that the reason behind paying for Carlos's attorney is, one, you know, Carlos does not probably have the money for it. But two, you don't want Carlos to flip. He's your employee. He's been loyal. He's your guy. You guys have a good relationship. And by continuing to pay for his legal fees, um, I think that Trump can hopefully maintain that relationship. Do you think Trump should have paid for the, the attorney, the defense fees for rioters? So I don't, I don't know whether he should have paid for all of their legal defense fees, but she, maybe bail. I mean, something. Some of these people were just unable to make ends meet. Their families were unable to make ends meet. And he has called these people patriots. If you think that they're patriots, if they think that, that they're here for you, then you owe them something. Yeah. I mean, that's also probably something to consider it's, before you break into the, the capital. Well, go ahead, Jim. I said going back to the point of the of paying for the legal fees. That's typical in a lot of situations where, you know, where you have someone who can't afford counsel, people pay for counsel. But the important thing there is that the lawyer representing that individual is representing that individual's rights and representing the individual that he that he's representing in court and not the interests of the folks paying the legal fees. That's the important point. And that's something that, you know, the rubber's going to hit the road on this as things st start to clamp down on these witnesses or on Oliveira, and he's going to have to make some decisions. May Mailman, Jim Schultz, unfortunately we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Tonight, CNN has obtained the frantic 911 call made after LeBron James's 18-year-old son, Bronny, went into cardiac arrest on the basketball court. Listen, 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 listen to me, okay? Get ambulance here now.
Ronnie James fortunately has since been released from the hospital. He is at home recovering. His dad tweeted, well wishes. My next guest is not only a longtime friend of Bronny's, but he is also the son of another basketball superstar, Shaquille O'Neal. Sharif O'Neal had had his own heart scare, undergoing open heart surgery at the age of 18 before he also made his way back to the basketball court. I had a chance to sit down with him. Here's that conversation. Joining me now is Sharif O'Neal. Sharif, I'm so glad you're joining us tonight. Obviously, Bronny has now been released from the hospital. He's at home resting. Uh, obviously, very good news. How'd you feel when you when you heard that update about your friend? Um, it was it was relieving to me. You know, I, I hope nobody ever has to go through something that I went through. And you know, hearing that he's out, it, it made me smile. And you know, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. And what did you think? I mean, when you first heard this news, it, it kind of shocked. Everyone, not just the sports world, everyone who's followed uh, his career and that he had had suffered cardiac arrest on the basketball court. What went through your mind? Um, you know, it kind of brought me back to, you know, what I went through when I was 18 years old, my first year of college basketball. And I was at the rival school, UCLA. Um, you know, we didn't have too much of similar situations, but, you know, it both has to do with the heart. And, you know, it just kind of brought me back to those days. You know, those are pretty sad days for me and you know I just wanted to to kind of I spent so long not thinking about it and when something like that happens you know it kind of just brings me back so when I heard you know I was, I was devastated you know I was just hoping everything was okay but you know I got work pretty quickly that, that he was that he was getting taken care of yeah there are so few people who can really empathize with what he was going through better better than you can because you did both have the heart scares as teenagers. Obviously, you both have dads who are superstars. You're both each talented, really talented yourself. I mean, what would what's something that you wish you knew when you were going through that that, that he should know now? Um, that you know, it's the doctors are professionals. You know, kind of how NBA players are professionals. The doctors are kind of like the NBA players of the, of the medical side. So, uh, what I wish I would have known is you know, trusting them more because I was so scared the whole time. You know, everything they were telling me, I just kind of went in one ear, went out the other because I was just so scared for my life. But, you know, I wish I would have had a better sense of listening, you know, trusting them to, you know, kind of protect my own uh, my own spirit and my own emotion. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a terrifying experience. And I know you said while you were lying in bed after you had open heart surgery to fix an artery that was essentially growing in the wrong place. You were watching a game with your dad, and you said he turned to you and he gave you the best advice that, that he's ever given you. What was that advice? Um, he, he told me two things, you know. Uh, they're both pretty simple, but, you know, it just means a lot to me coming from him. You know, the first one is he knew that people were saying negative stuff about it, like, I'll never be able to do this, never do that. And he just simply told me, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do anything, you know, whatever you believe in you can achieve this. So that stuck with me. And then we were watching a UCLA game, you know, I was supposed to be playing that season. And then he just looked at me and said, if you make it out of this and you would turn back on the court, you'll be the baddest man on the planet. So, you know, that stuck with me and that still sticks with me. Every time I go play, you know, every time I wake up, I always, I always think of that quote he told me. Yeah. And have you been able to, to talk to Bronny since everything happened, check in on him? Uh, yes, I just sent him a message, you know, when something like that happens, uh, from my experience, you know, I kind of didn't want to look at my phone. I didn't want to keep opening social media and seeing people talking about it because, you know, it's such a such a 
serious moment in life that you kind of just want to forget about it. You know, you just want everything to be better. So, you know, I just send them a quick message and tell them if he has any questions, uh, reach out to me or my mom or my dad, anybody. That family is really close to mine. So I just said reach out, told them I love them. And then just I just I'm going to let that family have their space, you know, kind of be together during this time because I know that was a big thing for me when I was going through it was, was family being there for me. So I'm going to respect their privacy. You know, I don't want to bombard. I know a lot of people are probably reaching out to the whole family, but, you know, I just sent them a quick message and, and he knows that we, we see each other all the time. Uh, but he's really good friends with my little brother. So, you know, when we talk about it, we will, but I know it's pretty soon right now. So I kind of wanted to respect his, his privacy right now. Yeah. And and after everything you went through, I know you partnered up with the American Heart Association. Uh, obviously, that was very important to you. What can you tell us about the work that you've done with them and what that's been like learning from that experience that you had? Um, you know, I, I didn't really know a lot about the heart until I had to go through this. And, you know, American Heart Association has been doing a great job of allowing me to connect with them, you know, learn more about it and spread heart awareness because, you know, this is a a problem. There's been a few incidents in these, I want to say the past year or two with uh, two basketball and one football, you know, it's a, it's a big problem in sports. And a lot of, a lot of programs don't, I feel like they don't check their athletes' hearts. And, you know, luckily the, the situation that happened, everybody's fine from it. You know, the three that uh, I'm thinking of right now, but I think it's really important that people know about this, you know, get their hearts checked. And especially in, uh, African-American men that are athletes, you know, it happens a lot. And I, I want to start spreading awareness about it, you know, so we, we can prevent this problem from happening and, you know, kind of find out what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such a critically important message. Sharif O'Neal, thank you for joining us. Obviously, we're all wishing Bronny the best as well as he recovers. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us tonight and every night this week. Who's Talking to Chris Wallace is up next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.